Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you again. I, I'm amazed at uh, how long we've actually been serving in ministry, and just want to thank you uh, for all the years, probably 16, 17 years that the church has prayed for us, supported us, uh, encouraged us, uh, written letters to our kids, sent them birthday cards when they were little. They're all huge now, so they've all grown up. Uh, most of them are as big as I am. Uh, but it's been really good uh, to have you as a part of our ministry, uh, to encourage us over the years. Um, I want to tell you a little bit before we look at the scriptures, a little bit about some of the things that God is doing, some of the things that God has done. Uh, we've been involved in Muslim ministry for now for over 20 years, about 24, I think, total work first here in the United States with an organization in the PCA called Church Without Walls, helping churches engage with Muslim communities. Uh, and then we've worked for about almost 17 years now with Missions of the World, first serving in the church planning team for about 10 years in Muslim West Africa, and then working as a regional director for Muslim ministry. And now I basically work with all our Muslim ministry partnerships. And... <clears throat> Ministry to Muslims has completely changed over my lifetime. When we first became involved with Muslim ministry, it was very rare to see anybody come to faith in Christ. Um, it was even rarer to see churches started. But now we've passed through a period in which God's spirit has worked in such a way that he's opened people's hearts in the Muslim world as never before. Arab world ministry says basically there have been more Muslims come to faith in Christ in the last 10 years than in the previous 1,500. And that is, that is no stretching uh, the truth at all. Uh, God has really opened the doors, and we're seeing many leaders raised up, men who have huge vision and passion to reach their own people. Um, and it's been just a real privilege over the last few years for me to actually spend most of my time working with these national leaders. I wanted to mention a couple men to you that I've been, just gotten to know over the last couple years. Uh, and just really been a real pleasure to get to know them and help them uh, move forward in the vision that they have to try to build up the church, reach Muslims for Christ. One of them is a young man named Hatem. Hatem is probably in his early 30s. He just recently got married a couple of years ago. Uh, they just had their first baby, little Yusuf. Uh, Hatem has worked, he's an Egyptian. He's worked in Arab media for about 10 or 12 years now, both producing programming for satellite stations in Arabic and for different ministries, helping them uh, do training, helping them uh, with evangelism, all sorts of things. He's a, he's a dear, wonderful brother. He worked for many years pretty much on his own, uh, survived on about $100 a month uh, support from friends and family. Uh, and I met him several years ago and at a point in time in which MTW was starting to realize that we were going to have increasing difficulty putting missionaries in different countries, especially in the Arab countries. Uh, a lot of missionaries have been expelled recently, especially this past year. So we knew we had to have means to continue to build up the churches, to do evangelism, and to reach out. So we began to look for opportunities to uh, develop Arabic media uh, ministries and, and uh, had the opportunity to get to meet this brother. He's now joined Mission to the World, and we'll be starting an Arabic media production company in the Middle East, along with an Arab media training school, 
And the school will actually be run in Arabic and English. So if any of you are uh, budding young uh, filmmakers, you have a great opportunity to go over and spend about five months in the Middle East and really learn how God is using media uh, to spread the kingdom in the Muslim world. Uh, I actually hope one of my sons will go. Uh, I think it would be a lot of fun for him to do. The other man is a man named Abu. Abu is a Fulani convert. His father was a very powerful Muslim holy man. Uh, but Abu said that from, from his early childhood, he really felt he was not, uh, he didn't fit in in the Muslim world. And as about 18 years old, he became a believer. He's a man who has a huge passion to reach his people. The Fulani people are the largest Muslim people group in West Africa. They're spread through about five or six countries. They originally were nomadic people, and so they had all these routes that they would travel uh, and they, as they tended cattle and moved from one place to another. Abu has even gone so far as actually to walk those old trade routes and to pray for his people. Um, and so we're looking at ways we can come alongside him, help him um, realize his vision. He is, he is a passionate evangelist and church planter. And everywhere he goes, people come to faith in Christ. Churches get started. But he said, I am a lousy discipler and trainer. And so he's asked specifically that we try to find someone to come alongside him and help with discipleship and training. So if any of you have any sense of calling to discipleship and training, you want to go work with a guy who's just would be wonderful to spend a few years with, I'm sure he would love to have you come alongside him. Uh, this morning, I wanted to look uh, at the scriptures uh, we're going to look at John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Um, I'm often asked by people, you know, how is it that we can make a difference in our world? Uh, if you look around you, there's often, uh, you know, things that fall short of God's glory. This morning, I was sitting in the Sunday school class, and Tim Keller was talking about the fact that we live in a period um, in which the power of the kingdom of God has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, but we yet have, we've not yet realized the fulfillment of that kingdom. So there's a lot of things in our world that fall short of God's glory. It could be something in your community that doesn't bring God glory. It could be um, the 850 million Muslims in the world who have yet to hear the gospel. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is necessarily. Um, there's all sorts of things that we're called to engage with and to really see uh, the realization of God's kingdom uh, to the fullest extent we can now during this age before Christ returns and actually brings the kingdom in fully. Uh, and often when we look at those things, we can become overwhelmed. I mean, think about trying to figure out how to take the gospel to 850 million Muslims. Um, you know, just come up with a plan and a strategy that's big enough and has enough resources behind it and, you know, you'll get it done. But that's often not the case. A lot of times our plans and our strategies don't really end in actually accomplishing the things that we hope they will. So one of the things that we've done as a mission is actually to look at some very simple things. I think Christ, in reality, is far more uh, practical, far more simple in his approach uh, to impacting the world than, than we usually are. We usually like to sort of resort to the big plan. Uh, and one of the things that we've done is we've looked at, at what we call the one another commands. There's a number of uh, statements throughout the New Testament. Uh, for instance, uh, 1 Peter 5.14 says simply, to, we are to greet one another. Uh, Galatians 5.13 tells us that we are to serve one another. 
John 13, 34 talks about the fact that we are to love one another. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 talks about the fact that we are to encourage or exhort one another. So there's a whole series of these. And as you're looking at the scriptures, I think it's every time you come across one, just note it. You know, there's, there's a lot more than just these. Uh, and those really are the things uh, through which we are the community of Christ, uh, a light, uh, you know, set on a, on a hill that cannot be hidden. It's through doing those things to one another in the body of Christ, but also doing those things to our neighbors uh, that we really end up uh, being able to impact our world in great ways. Uh, <clears throat> when we first got to West Africa, uh, I didn't speak French at all. French is a national language where we were. So I spent the first eight or nine months just studying French. At the end of that time, actually my team members all went home on their first furlough. And so my wife and I were there by ourselves. And we actually had a very small group of believers meeting together, a handful of adults meeting together to do a little Bible study. And my job for that year was just basically to keep the group meeting together, keep working on my French, not get into too much trouble, and wait for the rest of the team to get back. Um, <clears throat> I think it was about a year after we'd been there at one of the little Bible studies, a young lady came to me that was part of it, and she said, I have a really bad problem. She said, I, uh, my parents have arranged a marriage for me with a Muslim holy man. And she said, I've not told them that I'm a believer. I'm afraid that if I go home to my village that my parents will actually force me into this marriage and apparently it was possible for them to do that. So she had decided basically just to stay in the city, not go home, and hope that their parents would, would ultimately forget about this and it would kind of blow over. Uh, but she came to me that day and she said, the problem is, is that my aunt has died and there's absolutely no way I can't go home to attend her funeral. It's just not possible to break that cultural tradition. So she said, what I think I can do is if I go home, I can attend the funeral, and if you will come and drive down to my village the day after I get there and pick me up, bring a couple of men from the Bible study with you so they'll help you find out where it is, uh, and just bring me back to the city, I think, like, you know, that'll be a solution. And to be honest with you, that was, that was something I had absolutely no interest in doing, um, our original plan was to work in the city, work among, in a particular area in the city, among a particular type of people, a different group of people. We had no, no plans to go out and work in village areas. Uh, I had an old Renault station wagon uh, that barely could get around the city, much less drive out on these just horrendous roads that you wouldn't believe out into the middle of nowhere. And I just knew, you know, I'm going to get out there. The car's going to break down. I'm going to be stuck in the middle of nowhere, or we're going to get into this village and we're going to get into some big hoopla with these Muslim guys over trying to get this girl out of there before they make her marry this Muslim holy man. So quite honestly, <clears throat> I really didn't do this, this thing very willingly, but I talked to my wife and she said, you've got to do it. You know, you're the only one with a car, so who else is going to go down there? So I headed out uh, with two friends. I brought a Cameroonian friend who was a doctor, and I figured that would be a good thing to have along in case we had any problems. And then one of the men who was in the Bible study who knew where the village was, I figured that was another good thing to have along, somebody who could get us there and get us back. Um, basically, what happened that day was, 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 was completely unanticipated. Uh, we ended up stopping at a couple different places. 
and had the chance to share the gospel with some people. And uh, at the end of the day, 40 people had actually prayed to receive Christ. Um, and I got home. My wife greeted me. She was really anxious. I got home really late that night. And I sat down, and she got me something to drink. And I said, I said, I got to tell you what happened. She said, what? And I said, we saw all these people come to faith in Christ. And her first reaction was, wow, that's terrible. We can't follow them up. What are we going to do? And I said, you're right. That is terrible. I have ruined everything. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'll tell you a little more about that. Let's look at our text, John 13, uh, verses 1 through 17. <clears throat> so John 13, verses 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. When he came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but, you will, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put, his, put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your, te- your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. For I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you chose, Lord, to humble yourself, to become uh, human, to come to this world, uh, to step down from your glory in heaven that you had with your Father. And we do thank you that you are indeed our teacher and our Lord, uh, but that you are like no other teacher, no other master that's ever walked this, this earth, Lord. You're humble, you're loving, uh, your example to us is uh, completely uh, unbelievable, Lord. We do ask you that you would speak to us today, teach us uh, something about yourself, teach us something about ourselves. Lord, help us grow closer to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I basically want to look at just three things this morning. One is to kind of talk about the context of our passage a little bit and then look at some things that the, we can learn about uh, Christ and about God uh, from this passage. And then lastly, just look at a few things that we can learn about ourselves. The first thing is <clears throat> uh, a little bit to give you an idea of what uh, foot washing is and what it is not. Um, some churches have actually elevated... Um, the practice of foot washing to be an actual ceremony. For instance, the Roman Catholic Church practices it annually. 
some of the Orthodox churches do that. Some churches have even raised it to the level of, of a sacrament so that they, they practice it as if it was uh, something instituted by Christ like the Lord's Supper. Uh, but in reality, it's important to look uh, at what Christ says about this, and I don't think it's, it's appropriate for us to, to take what he did and to apply it as a ceremony or a sacrament or something like that. John thirteen fifteen. basically, Jesus does not say, do what I have done. He says simply, do as I have done. And John Calvin, in his commentary, uh, takes this, this passage and, and, and comments on it. He says, Christ does not here enjoin an annual ceremony, but he bids us be ready throughout our whole life to wash the feet of our brethren and our neighbors. So I think it's, it's, it's not appropriate to... Uh, to think of, of what Christ did here as initiating some sort of uh, ceremony or some sort of sacrament for the church. But it doesn't mean that it's not important, actually. Uh, and actually, one commentary said that uh, the story of the foot washing um, is one of the most profound revelations of the heart of God apart from the crucifixion itself. And it's really in this story uh, of the foot washing that we see very deeply into the nature of Christ's relationship with his disciples uh, the nature of the relationship that Jesus expected his disciples would have with one another. And really we see a great deal about the nature of the mission that Christ expected his disciples to have in the world. Um, if we look at the context of it, um, in the Gospels, uh, you have a general flow, a pattern uh, in all of the Gospels. Basically, Christ starts out in the Gospels uh, explaining to the public at large who he is. He demonstrates that through his teaching, through miracles, through parables. Uh, and, uh, you know, he is expressing to the world who he is. It really does that up to the point where finally uh, it's especially noticeable in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew sixteen twenty one. After Peter finally sort of gets it and uh, Jesus asks him the question, who do people say I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The minute that, you know, that dawns on the disciples, Jesus actually changes his orientation. And it says, basically, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem and begins to tell the disciples that he's going there in order to die for them. Um, and it's, it's really chapter 12 of John is sort of the culmination of that redirection of his ministry to go up to Jerusalem. And at the opening of chapter 12, we have uh, the triumphal in entry into Jerusalem. <clears throat> and what we see there in John uh, 12, 13 is that Jesus has become a hugely popular public figure. John 12, 13 says this, the crowds are basically crying out as, as Christ is coming into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. In 12, 19 the Pharisees, discussing this among themselves, they're not really very keen on Jesus, but they've noticed what's happening among the crowds, and they say this. They say, look how the whole world is going after him. And then the scriptures comment in 1242 and says, even many among the leaders believed in him, but they would not confess their faith for fear, for they loved the praise from men more than the praise from God. And, and this is kind of the scene leading up to our passage and we see that Jesus basically, I mean, he's an immensely popular public figure. He could have taken that, that popularity and used that. Uh, I think that would probably be our tendency. 
we would probably say, wow, you know, whatever I'm doing, my ministry is hugely popular. I'm, I'm just going to use that to move forward with it. But Christ doesn't do that. He actually, at that point, turns back to simply spending time with his disciples. And it's during this, this period of time, uh, the, after the end of the trial entry through to the, to the time that he's taken to be tried and crucified, that he spends the most deep time with his disciples explaining to them who he truly is. And it's right there, basically, that we have our passage. Um, following our passage, um, we have basically kind of a mixture of a narrative of the events that lead up to the crucifixion of Christ with him teaching uh, his disciples more and more about who he is. So we have a betrayal uh, uh, of Jesus in John 12, 21. He says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. We have his denial. Uh, Mark in his gospel says, um, you will all fall away from me. Uh, and so all the disciples abandon him and deny him. And then we have his crucifixion. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of the context of where our passage is. Now, if we want to look at a couple of things from it in terms of what does it say to us about God and what does it say to us about ourselves, I like to do that pretty often because I think Calvin really hit on something. Calvin said there's really only two kinds of knowledge, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And he said those two kinds of knowledge are actually intertwined with one another. The more we know about God, the more we know about ourselves. And the more we know about ourselves, the more we know about God. And so I like to look, when I look at passages, try to try to bring out for myself as much as I can about what does it say about God and what does it say about man. Uh, and look at three things here that we learn about about Jesus and about God. First of all, a lot of what we learn in our passage in John, we learn from what Jesus did. Um, typically, we, we like to study the Bible. We like to start out with a, something that says God is this way or man is this way. And then we like to reflect on that and figure out, okay, well, what does that mean about what I should do? Actually, in Eastern thought, it's almost the reverse process. Usually, Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox churches in Judaism, even in Islam, uh, the tendency is to reflect on something that you need to do or something that, you know, God has done, and then from that extract our, our, our ideas about who God is and who we are. And that's kind of what Jesus has done here. He actually is teaching the disciples something very profound through a living parable. Uh, not only does he teach them through a living parable, he then in, ends that teaching by basically asking them to do something so that they will go on and learn more deeply themselves what he's trying to explain to them. The nice thing is that we have the commentary of the scriptures. I can imagine for the disciples what Jesus did was completely baffling. Uh, you know, they didn't have the commentary that we get like in John 12, 1, where it says, he now showed them the full extent of his love. It would have been nice if they had a little cue card that said, okay, Jesus is now expressing his love for you. Okay, that makes sense. That's good. Uh, but they didn't. Uh, and what Jesus does there is he expresses his love for them uh, in this act of serving them. And actually that, that little phrase, uh, he showed them the full extent of his love, full extent can actually be translated two ways. It can, it can mean full extent. In other words, he's expressing his love for them in the act of serving them. 
and, and explain to him what his love for them is like. Or it can mean to the last. And I don't, it depends on what translation of the Bible here. You may have a Bible that says he now showed them his love to the last. And I think uh, that also points to what commentaries say that this passage actually paints the scene for all the rest of the book of John. In other words, Christ choosing to serve his disciples this way basically expresses um, very deeply and profoundly uh, what was going on in the expression of love of God for the disciples and Christ actually going to the cross. And so it's appropriate to think of that verse, both he expressed the full extent of his love in that act, but also in that that act itself gives us a clue into into the crucifixion and actually the love that motivated uh, God to to go to that extent to redeem man. Uh, It's interesting to look also at the way he did that. Um, First of all, Christ broke with some very strong social conventions. Um, What he did was was fairly scandalous for the disciples. Uh, But it's interesting that when you read that passage, if you not just look at what he did and what's going on there, but what, what are the things that are lacking and the one thing that seems to be completely lacking is any, any hint of pride or arrogance. He's not doing this um, kind of the proud, arrogant, social rebel. He's doing this simply because he loves these men and wants to express that to them. Uh, the other thing that's striking is that we're told basically he knows that Judas has already, it's already come into the heart of Judas that he will betray Jesus. And we don't have any hint in this passage that when he washed the disciples' feet, he did anything different for Judas. The other thing is you have to realize that every one of the disciples was going to deny him and abandon him. Uh, But there really is no hint here at all of fear or self-concern. He washes all their feet knowing what's going to happen fully, knowing what he's going to face. Um, And it would be hard for me to imagine... Uh, doing that. Can you think of, if you were with a group of friends, longtime friends, you're sitting having a, a meal, um, but you found out that one of them is basically going to betray you to the authorities, uh, lie about who, you know, what you've done, uh, and then you are going to be taken uh, the next day, uh, you'll be tried, you'll be convicted, and you'll be put to death. And all your friends are going to turn their back on you. They're going to abandon you. Not one of them is going to come and testify and try to get you out of this. Can you imagine uh, in that setting with just complete calm uh, and no hint of, oh, poor me, uh, doing something like this to serve people that you knew were going to do that to you? But that is really the expression of the depth, I think, of, of Christ's love for them, that he had no, no hint of fear, no hint of self-concern when he did this. And the scriptures actually tell us how he did that. I think in verse 12, 3, it says very clearly, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And it was really this sense of his identity, the fact that he knew he came from God, God had all things put under his power, he was going back to God, that allowed him to be a completely different person. When you look at the life of Christ and you compare him with any other religious leader, it doesn't matter who it is, he is completely unique in how he carried out his mission in the world and how he lived out his life. Uh, 
Matthew 20, 25 through 28 is a very good passage where Christ talks about this. It says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among First must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So basically, we see that God's, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, as it says in Isaiah 55. Uh, and that Christ lived out his life and ministry in a very different way. And really, that's what he's demonstrating to his disciples in this passage. Now, what are some of the things that we can see about ourselves? We, got a, we have a great gift in the person of Peter. Uh, Peter is the guy who basically asks all the dumb questions, uh, does all the stupid things. Um, he's the guy who, who basically acts out what everybody else is kind of wondering about and thinking. So I think it's in Peter that we can actually see not only his reaction, but also we see a lot of what's going on in the other disciples. And we can learn a lot about ourselves, I think, as well. Uh, the first thing is that Peter basically sees Christ doing this. He finally gets around to him, and Peter's just had it. He's like, this is just, this is shameful. He can't do this. And in John thirteen eight, Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And every, <laughs> every text that we have in, uh, from the ancient world um, that talks about foot washing, foot washing was actually a cultural practice. It wasn't something weird that Jesus just made up on the spur of the moment. It was something people did, but it was always something that was done uh, by an inferior for his superiors. He would never have a teacher wash the feet of his students. He would never have a leader wash the feet of those who followed him. And actually, it was usually something that someone would relegate, not, not, wouldn't do themselves. They would, they would have a slave do that for them. So when Christ took off his clothes, wrapped the cloth around him, it was very clear that he was choosing to be a slave to his own followers. And that was just, that was too much for Peter. That was more than he could take. Uh, and I think really when, sometimes when God asks us to serve, he asks us to do things that, that can feel a bit shameful to us. Um, it's easy to do the big things. It's easy to do things that seem important. But a lot of times when God asks us to do something um, very mundane, uh, you know, we maybe start off okay with it, but then eventually we kind of get to the point where we're going, well, I don't think I really should do this. I remember we had had training for a number of years in, in evangelism and outreach. And one year I usually taught those and... One year, I, I told the men that I was working with, I said, I don't want to teach this year. I want you guys to teach. I've been teaching this for several years. You guys are much better at it than I am. And I said, we'll go out and we have a week together uh, with a good large group, 40 or 50 people, uh, training them to do evangelism. And I said, basically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to watch the kids, and I'll clean bathrooms, and I'll run around and get your stuff for you and stuff like that. Well, it started out okay that week, but by midweek, I was pretty much going, you know, I... It'd be too bad teaching again, and <laughs> but anyway, I do think you know we have to face that uh, when God calls us to do some things that aren't aren't necessarily um, very pleasant or very very enjoyable. 
Uh, the second thing we see is that Peter seems to think that the, he gets some kind of special power or blessing in this. In John 13, 9, after Peter, I mean, uh, Jesus very gently rebukes Peter and explains to him the, the necessity uh, for, to allow him to wash his feet. Uh, Peter then says, Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And I've worked, a lot of the Muslims that I've worked with are, are what's called folk Muslims. They, they mix animistic worldview with Islam. And animism basically is all about getting power in order to protect yourself and have a bargaining chip so that you can deal with life. And uh, Jack Miller, um, in one of his books, talks about how Christians actually do that. He talks about it in terms of magic Christianity, how we will do something for God that we know he wants us to do, or we don't do something that he knows we don't want us to do. But then we use that as kind of a bargaining chip. We say, okay, God, I did this, and now uh, you know, I've got, I got, uh, got some credits with you, and I'm going to call them in now, and I want you to do this for me. And I think that's a little bit how Peter is viewing this. And that's how we can use our service. We can actually use it as a bargaining chip with God, or we can use it as a way to try to manipulate people. Um, so we have to be careful of that. The third thing we see in Peter is that he's really overconfident in his ability to follow Christ. That's actually in John 13, later in a, in a discussion between Peter and Jesus. Uh, it says this, John 13, 36 and 37. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Um, and Peter really, I mean, Peter's really overconfident here because, you know, within 24 hours, Peter is, is out cursing and saying, I don't even know this guy. I mean, you know, forget it. And he's doing that with a little servant girl who came up to him and said, you know, your speech gives you away. You've got to be a Galilean and you've got to be one of Jesus' followers. I mean, he couldn't even hold on 24 hours. And I'll be honest with you, I think we all fail uh, in following what Christ asks us to do to serving others. I mean, we all have good intentions. We want to, but uh, at times we do fail. And um, I don't find that we're a whole lot different than the disciples. Uh, the other thing we see here is actually that the scriptures give us a good insight into what's going on in, in the minds of all the disciples. Basically, they were very confused. Uh, Jesus says in John thirteen seven, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And even something as simple as what he was demonstrating there is impossible for us uh, as believers to grasp apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, Christ anticipates that. And in John 14, verses 15 and 17, 25 and 26, he basically tells the disciples what, what they need in order to really understand what he's trying to teach them. It says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So we need God's Spirit. And I have been, I've been a believer now for over 30 years. Uh, I have been in uh, missions for now for over 20 years. And all along I have seen the importance of serving just doing the little things. And I've seen think God do great things. But it really just sort of, I forget it. Every time I turn around, 
I'm going like, okay, I need to do this, I need that, you know, we need this resource, we need that. And it really takes the Holy Spirit to kind of pull me up short and say, no, listen, what you really need to do is just give your heart and your life to serving people. And I think we do have a tremendous encouragement in the scriptures uh, to help us choose to serve other people. In John 13, 17, Christ closes this passage by saying, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And I think that's where we have to wrestle personally. Uh, the things that Christ has asked me to do are not the things that he asks you to do. Um, a lot of people come up and say, I, you know, I really admire what you're doing. I think it's great. I can never do that. Uh, I know a lot of people who do things I could never do. Uh, I met a family recently who adopted a little girl from India whose face had been eaten off by a rat when she was a baby. And I just thought, wow, that is, that's something that God's calling to you, you to that is just incredible for me. I couldn't even do that. Youth ministry. No way I'm going to ever be involved in youth ministry. Terrifies me to death. You know, let me, I'll go out in the middle of a Muslim country and preach the gospel, but don't put me in a room with a bunch of youth. Okay? So, um, but God calls us all, I think, personally. And the question that you have to ask yourself is when he says, now that you know these things, you will, you will be blessed if you do them. What are the, what are the them things for you? And that's where you really have to kind of wrestle with God in his spirit. I, I think, honestly, the easiest thing to do is to say, okay, is there an opportunity? Has God placed an opportunity before me to serve someone, to help someone, to do something? And do I have the means to do it? And when opportunity and means come together, I think, I think it's hard to really argue with God that, that you shouldn't do that thing. Um, <clears throat> our, our passage says basically that we'll be blessed. Uh, I think we also find that in our service, not only are we blessed, but that the, the world around us is blessed. When I went out that, that day to pick up that young lady, to bring her back, um, it really completely changed the direction of our ministry in West Africa. Um, out of that, uh, basically, God has every little step along the way led up to the point where today there are 100 churches planted in four countries just as a result of that. It would not have happened if we had just stayed focused on our plans and our intentions originally. And those 100 churches are now planning 20 to 25 churches a year. Uh, and they have vision to reach out into a new country this year, new country the year after. Uh, and so just from that one little act of choosing to, to um, uh, do something I didn't really want to do uh, and, and uh, taking the opportunity to help someone when I really was the only one in the position to do that, God has really uh, basically brought thousands of people to himself and built a, a tremendous movement of church planning and, and testimony in that part of Muslim Africa. But the passage that we have, it doesn't really say that that's what's going to happen. I think that's, that's implied in other passages. Uh, basically, Christ says, if you do them, you will be blessed. Um, and I think what we have to do to really understand that blessing, to experience it, we have to face some things. We have to be willing to face a few things. Because, quite honestly, when you serve people, uh, it doesn't always turn out well. Uh, it doesn't always... You know, you don't always have a happy ending where you come home that day and can tell your wife 40 people came to faith in Christ. A lot of times it goes very badly. 
and I have a number of instances like that too, but I won't, I won't bore you with them. Um, but often we have the same experience that Christ had. When we choose to serve others, very often uh, they don't appreciate that service. Uh, they don't understand it. Uh, they might even um, turn their backs on us. They might even betray us. I had a good friend last year who was killed. Uh, dear brother, just as sweet as he could be, his only desire was to help the people in the country that he was called to. And he wasn't a great evangelist. He wasn't out burning up the world, planting churches or anything like that. He was just there simply to help people, to be a living testimony. And uh, Al-Qaeda actually decided he was a threat. And two men walked up behind him one day while he was in the market and shot him and killed him. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of experience that we might have. I mean, I don't think, I don't think if you go over and help your neighbor take out his trash or cut his grass or do whatever, he's going to shoot you. But, um, you know, you, you can end up doing things for people, and, and, and they can end up not appreciating them. So you have to face basically the sin in other people when you serve them. And in order to do that, ultimately, you really have to draw close to Christ, and the love of Christ has to flow through you so that you can continue to serve when, when people don't appreciate what you're doing. The other thing is, unlike Christ, we basically have to deal with our own sins. Christ came into the world without sin. He was able to serve. His, he had no mixed motives. He had no, no uh, he never fell short. He always uh, did exactly what God's will was for him. He always served every person that he served. He served them completely. Um, but we fail. Uh, I have often as not failed in my uh, service to others. And I have had to sit and, and watch them be disappointed in me. Uh, and I've had to face my own shortcomings and my own sin. And in order to do that, we really have to have a secure identity in Christ. We have to be secure in, in his love for us. Otherwise, you end up sort of, you get to the point where you give up. I think it's a wonderful passage where Paul actually expresses this, this dealing with your own sin in the service of others. Second Corinthians 13, 7 and 9. I'm reading it from the message, um, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of it. It says, I hope the test won't show that we have failed, but if it comes to that, we'd rather the test showed our failure than yours. We're rooting for the truth to win out in you. We couldn't possibly do otherwise. We don't just put up with our limitations. We celebrate them and then go on to celebrate every strength, every triumph of the truth in you. We pray hard that it will all come together in your lives. It seems to me that Paul has really come to a point in his life where he is able to face both his own sins and his serving other people and the fact that they don't always turn out the way, you know, uh, he hopes they would. But he has this wonderful hope in the gospel and the power of the gospel there. Um, I heard a sermon several months ago. <clears throat> a friend of mine preached. Um, he actually wasn't even talking about service. So <laughs> uh, he basically said that if our hearts aren't focused on the gospel, then what happens to us is that our successes end up being our saviors and our failures end up being our judges and that we're always going to be tossed to and fro between either arrogance, proud that we succeeded, or towards despair, despairing the fact that we've once again failed uh, to do what God has asked us to do. And I think that's, we see that in the life of Christ. We see how he is so centered on his identity in God that he's not, he's not tossed around like that. He just simply goes and serves these men and demonstrates his love for him.
for them. I'd like to close by reading a little prayer from a devotional called Moments with Savior. Um, Just listen along with me. Be with me when I am fearful to make me faithful. And be with me when I am faithful to make me fruitful. Be with me when I am fruitful to make me humble. For it is only by your grace that I was chosen to serve you, only by your strength that I am even able to serve you, and only by your faithfulness that I am still serving you today. Amen.